You're listening to sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit our website at gcceugene.org. The late minister, Robert Farrar Capone, said the Reformation was a time when people went blind, staggering drunk because they had discovered in the dusty basement of late medievalism a whole cellar full of 1,500-year-old, 200-proof grace, bottle after bottle of pure, desolate scripture that would convince anyone that God saves us single-handedly. The Bible is a message of God's grace from beginning to end, and the Epistle of Romans is one of those letters that makes the gospel of grace explicitly clear. Drinking 200-proof alcohol would wreck you and could even kill you, Drinking from the fountain of grace we read about in Romans will do the same thing. The 200-proof, pure, free, unfiltered gospel of grace that takes you right where you are will put our life of sin and rebellion to death while bringing forth a new man, unbound, unchained, to live a truly free and transformed life under a perfect king. Martin Luther said, Romans is the chief part of the New Testament and the purest gospel. He said that every Christian should not only know it word for word, by heart, but also that they should occupy themselves with it every day as the bread of the soul. John Calvin stated about Romans, if we understand this epistle, we have a passage open to us to the understanding of the whole of scripture. Taste and experience the power of God for salvation for all who believe, the 200 proof strength of the gospel in Romans. Morning guys. We're going to continue in our series in Romans, but let me announce what we're going to be diving into next week. It's Advent, and so we're going to start our Advent series. So yeah, I'm excited for that. You can start getting it uh, ahead and reading ahead, and here's the good news. You don't have to read a ton. We're going to be looking at Isaiah 9-6 for the next four weeks, because in that we're given four names for the promised Messiah to come, which we know was Jesus. And so those names that we're going to be looking at this year for Advent are going to be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, everlasting father and prince of peace. So the Israelites were given a promise. These are the names of the Messiah. The names show what he's going to be like. In every one of those names, we have two aspects. We have the transcendence of Christ, which means that he is over and above everything with all authority, but he's also imminent, intimately involved with everything as well. And so we're going to look at that and and see how the name of Jesus unpacks his person his work, his nature, and all of that good stuff. So next week, we'll be diving into that. For today, Romans chapter three. And you guys, I'm really proud of you guys for hanging in there for the first three chapters of Romans because it's been heavy. The first three chapters are a lot. Here's the truth. We read this and chunk it up. That's not how they would have read it. In fact, there's a pastor that I love and respect. His name is Mark Dever, and he leads Capitol Hill Baptist Church. One time he said, someone asked him about the gospel, and what is it? And so he's like, let's read the book of Romans together. And he said, for the next three hours, he and that guy read Romans to just unpack what the gospel is. And so typically that is how the earlier church would have read it and would have understood it, is one letter. So when we spend the first three chapters talking about the doctrine of sin, it gets heavy. So it kind of feels like, all right, the, the, the wave is coming, it has hit me, it has clubbed me, I've gone under, I'm coming up for a brief second, and then another wave comes, and so that's how the past four weeks might have felt. Hang in there, because the good news is coming. Each week, no matter what, we're going to share the gospel, but the beauty 
of the gospel and the rescue of Christ really starts to unfold in chapter three. So with that, we're going to continue on in our series, Romans chapter three, verses one through 20 today. Let's read. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their, faithful, uh, does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how would God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Verse nine, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, this is a citation from Psalm 14 and 51. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speak to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your living, authoritative word. Thank you, Father, for unpacking to us in your love the true state of our hearts that show us the true state that we are born in, but that also shows us how desperately we need your son. Thank you for your scripture that also shows us the beauty of you sending your son and your son living in the way that we cannot. Father, I pray that you would soften every heart in here to, to, to receive, not for the person next to us, but for ourselves, what you have for us through your word today. For those that are in our church family that are going through a difficult season in life, Father, bring them comfort through your word. Even as we look at sin, even as we look at justice, today we also get to look at this, that you're faithful. Let the simple truth, God, of your faithfulness and your goodness minister to hearts and lives today. Father, there's many things we celebrate, including Henry getting to come home to John and Serena and Tommy. And so we praise you for that. We praise you for all the miracles that you're doing. Father, we thank you for being good. This morning, where we need to be convicted, convict us. Where we need to be encouraged, encourage us. Father, do this through your word and the faithful work of your spirit. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Surrender is a beautiful thing. That's our main point this morning. If you're going to leave here, Remembering one thing, it's that surrender is a beautiful thing, but it's a really difficult thing. In fact, I would say without God, it's impossible in light of how we're going to talk about it. So surrender is a beautiful thing, but it's really difficult. And without God, it's an impossible thing. 
from the earliest point of life, surrender is really hard for us because we're taught that surrender is weakness and to not surrender in anything. In fact, my favorite movie growing up came out in 1986. I was three years old. Was this movie called No Retreat, No Surrender? Has anyone in this room ever seen it? No, okay. Uh, <laughs> you guys are deprived. Uh, <clears throat> in this movie, there's this young man and he, gets, and, and he wants to do karate because this is the time the karate kid and everything got really big. And so he wanted to dive into karate and learn karate. What he ends up doing is being trained by Bruce Lee. Even though Bruce Lee's dead, Bruce Lee comes back to him in his dreams and he trains him. The big concept of the movie is this. And in the, in the final epic scene, he's fighting Jean-Claude Van Damme because it's his debut. And so he's twisted up in the ropes and he's got him up against the ropes. And Jean-Claude Van Damme is wailing on him and his buddy from the stands yells at him. He's like, Jason, he's like, no retreat, no surrender. And he like flips out of the ropes and he comes back and he wails on Jean-Claude Van Damme. It's like the epic ending. I watched that movie probably once a day for like five years of my life. You can ask my mom. I could not get enough of it. And so there was a song, No Retreat, No Surrender, it got stuck in my head. So I grew up thinking that the best thing in life is never to retreat and never to surrender. Might explain why I got plugged into the MMA scene and, and went that direction. But I also see this, that even if you don't have that, my son has from the age of five, this thing in him that he doesn't want to surrender. We grew up with it from the youngest age. We don't want to surrender to when we're wrong. My wife can tell you, I will... I will fight and fight in an argument, even though if I've been defeated and it logically makes no sense. I'm like, I'm holding ground and I'm backing down. I know what I'm saying. She's, uh, I think she just told someone next to her that's true. And so it is true. And I see it in my son, he's five and he's like, dad, what is 16 equal? And I'm like, that doesn't make sense. And he's like, what is it equal? And I'm like, 16. And then uh, he's like, no, 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 you're not getting it. And I'm like, oh. Okay, I don't think you're getting it. And then so I was like, 16 plus what? He's like, no, what does 16 equal? I was like, it, you have to either add or subtract or do something with it. And he's like, no, 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 no. He's like, I'm gonna go ask mom. Like, you're an idiot. <laughs> mom can help me out. So he goes upstairs and I hear my, my wife, Allie, she screams down there. She's like, Rick, <laughs> she knew what I did. I was like, encourage him. I'm like, yes, please go do that. Go ask your mom, you know? And so, uh, so she says the same thing. She's like 16. And so we, we get to see, he doesn't back down. Finally just sits down. He's like, all right, these people are idiots. They don't get it. I'm not going to surrender. They don't understand how to do math. And so, and I'm like, man, from the youngest of age, we have this thing in us where we're like, surrender's bad. I'm not going to back down. I'm going to hold my ground. Why is that so difficult when we come to the message of Christianity? Because the message of Christianity is opposite of Nike that says you can do it because the message of Christianity says you simply can't do it. You, you, you have no other choice but to surrender to the grace of God, to the work of Christ, and your inadequacy to live up to God's holy and righteous standard. And every ounce of pride in us says, but I want to contribute something. And we say, not to the gospel, not to the message of Christianity. Anything? Well, I'll, I'll give you one. Your sin. You bring that to the table. And so what Paul has been unpacking through chapters one through three is this understanding of this, that in chapter one, he, he, he unpacks what is sin and what is idolatry. And then he makes it clear that all are sinful and all are idolaters. And then he gets into chapter two and Paul blows up our categories that we love to use inside the world. 
We, we like to use good guy, bad guy language. In chapter two, Paul says, that's not the language. It's there's the repentant and there's the impenitent. There's those who live and walk in faithful repentance, and there's those who don't live and walk in repentance. And then as we move into chapter three, Paul's still making it clear. He's talking to both a Jewish audience and a Gentile audience. And he knows because he's a good evangelist, he's a good disciple, he's a good disciple and discipler. He knows questions that his Jewish audience is probably going to ask. And they start to ask here, as we see, what advantage has the Jew? Or of what value is circumcision? So he knows, based upon what he said, that there's a good chance they're going to start asking these types of questions. And so Paul is addressing, he's getting out ahead of his audience. And I'll say this, this is good for us to see what Paul is doing here, because it's also good for us as as disciples and disciple makers, which means student, to learn and understand our culture and objections that people are already going to arrive. When we tell people, hey, you need a savior, they're probably going to respond back with, no, I don't. Why? And we can be prepared to say, here is why you need one. So in a lot of ways, that's what Paul is doing. He's answering questions that his audience might have. What advantage has a Jew or what value of circumcision? I like what Paul says, much in every way, but then go down to verse nine. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. (laughs) It's like, wait a minute, what's going on, Paul? If you go back to verse one and two, what value is circumcision? Much in every way to begin with. Notice, Paul doesn't go to circumcision. Paul doesn't go to external acts. What he does is he goes to the word of God. He says, hey, here's what you were given. You were given the oracles of God. You were given the Hebrew Bible. You were given the Old Testament. And what the Old Testament did was point you to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so what value do you have as a Jewish person? You were given God's revelation of what the Messiah would be like when he was to come. That's what you have. But what about us being ethnically Jewish? Isn't that us? No, 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 no. But we're Jews. No, no, no. Paul is going to go on to say and make it clear that there's one in Christ. As he also says in Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free. Who do we have? Male nor female? We have one in Christ. And so he's, he's getting ahead of that. So verse two, much in every way to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. They might say, well, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? So in other words, what what they might ask is this, there's a lot of Jews that rejected Jesus. And so God's plan of salvation was always going to be through Jesus. What about the Jews that rejected Jesus? Is that, is that mean that God's not faithful? And we're introduced to this. God's faithfulness does not depend upon man's response. God's faithfulness does not depend upon our actions. God is faithful because that is consistent to who God is. That's his character. Now, if the Jewish people reject the Savior, that is not faithlessness on God's part. If the Jewish people reject the Savior, what Paul is alluding to is there are some who have accepted him, and there are some Gentiles who have, and that's a beautiful thing. So, verse 3, he says, by no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as is written, that, you're, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Keep going, verse 5. But if our unrighteousness then, 
serves to show the righteousness of God. What shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? What they're asking is this. It's, hey, since, since God is righteous, he's holy, he's set apart, he's good, he's perfect, and our unrighteousness only just makes that contrast even greater, why would God judge us? Why is there any judgment for us? I mean, that's just true to who we are. And Paul's like, that just simply doesn't make sense. And, and, and his argument is that we need a judge, but not just any judge, we need a just judge. The hope that I have in this world, please listen, the, <clears throat> the hope that I have in this world when I see evil, when I see injustice, is to know this, that I don't have to live seeking vengeance on someone else. It's not on me to go and make, make it right. The comfort that I have is that we have a just judge, and he is going to bring judgment. And it's not on me to go seek vengeance and put the world in a state of chaos in some sort of boondock saint theology where we're all making things right ourselves. No. Paul's saying, we got a just judge. We want a just judge. We need a God who is faithfully going to judge the world. Look at verse 7. But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us to saying? Their condemnation is just. So the other argument is this. Hey, since my sin shows how good God is, got a brilliant idea up the sin. I can lie a little more, cheat a little more, do stuff because all it's going to do is show how awesome God is. That view inside of Christianity is called antinomianism. And what it means is that you are anti-God's law. It's, it's unfaithful to Christianity because what we're not saying is throw out God's law. Paul's going to make that explicitly clear in this letter. What Paul is saying, you can't trust in the law to save you and to be your means and mode of salvation. But what we don't say is, hey, since it's just going to show how awesome God is, man, ramp it up. He's saying no. And he's like, we've been charged of that. We've been called antinomians, essentially. And he's saying, let their condemnation be just. That's not the message that we're preaching and teaching. So the first thing that we have to surrender to as a beautiful thing is God is righteous and we are not. God is just and we are not. God is the perfect standard of goodness, and we are not. It's really hard for us because we love to be called good people and good old boys. I don't know if good old girls is a thing, too. I've never heard that. I just thought of it. Uh, but yeah, we love that. And it's really hard for us to just first not start to compare ourselves side by side horizontally, but to first say the bar and standard that we need to look at is for, uh, first vertically. That's where we need to look at. And to, 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 to just be clear, that's where we need to stay. We like to do side-by-side -side comparison. The text gives us righteous and unrighteous. Let's see that. Secondly, we need to surrender to our heart condition. Look at verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. We have already charged. Paul's like, I've been making this clear. You just got to go back and read it. That all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. That is a legal term. That is our condition. Verse 10, as is written, none is righteous, no, not one. That is a positional term. So legally, we're guilty. Positionally, we're unrighteous. Here's, here's the great thing. 
That's everyone. Let's read it again. No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, not some, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, legally guilty. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. That's everyone. That's everyone. That's humbling. That's everyone. There's not degrees of lostness, per se. Like when we talk about someone, and maybe that's you inside of this room and you're not a Christian, we use terminology like lost. And I, I would assume you probably don't like that. What we're saying is there's no category of lost. There's not like lost, super lost, extremely lost. What we're saying and what scripture makes clear is that you're either dead in your trespasses and legally under sin and positionally separated from God as unrighteous or you're the other. Let me make sure you, you understand that. If a judge pronounces you guilty, that is your legal standing, you're guilty. Positionally, you will be removed from the room and removed from your family. That will be your positional standing. Without Christ, we are legally guilty and positionally separated from God as unrighteous. That's everyone. And I know that we love the categories of, man, they're, they're good. In fact, there's a pastor who I would encourage you not to listen to named Joel Osteen, and he says that 99% of people in their heart are just pretty good people. Say, that's not what the word of God says. We're dead born, or we are born dead in our trespasses. We go, well, they're super dead. No, 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 there's, there's, you're just dead. <laughs> like, like there's not categories of that. Let's do this, though. We, we don't like that because our culture likes to say, and we like to say that we're pretty good people. So if you would, I would invite you, let's do a little open heart surgery and kind of unpack these next few verses here, okay? All right. There is none, none is righteous, no, not one. Please understand what we mean by this. This means, and what righteousness means, is absolutely perfect, completely flawless, holy, without spot, wrinkle, or blemish. So you're either that or you're unrighteous. And and here's what I would ask. Do you believe that you've never sinned, that you are completely flawless and absolutely perfect? Because that is God's standard. The only person who is that is God. God is the only righteous person. And so if you believe that you are completely sinless, absolutely perfect, flawless, going to break it to you. You're believing a lie because only God holds that. And so when, when we say, Hey, I, I think I should go to heaven. I'm, I'm a pretty good guy. The category we, we, we need to say is, are you completely righteous? Because that's God's standard. Or are you unrighteous? Not, not, not pretty good guy, because what we do is then we say, well, compared to him, compared to her, pretty good guy. God's standard, completely righteous. Only God is that. In fact, I love the story of Jesus when he talks to the rich young ruler. Because this, there's this rich young ruler who comes to him, and he would be a great moral citizen by all accounts as, as we look at this young man. And he seems to ask a very noble question to Jesus. He says, Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So much pride in that statement. But he says, Good teacher. Jesus corrects him and says, hey, why do you call me good? No one is good except God. And then he asks a performance-based question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What does Jesus do? He, he, he goes on to say, well, 
the Ten Commandments. And the dude's like, got him, <laughs> like nailed him. So I'm good too. The rich young ruler was blind to see that he hasn't measured up to God's righteous standard. And, and it comes to, Jesus says, sell all your riches. He's like, I can't. And he couldn't see that he'd already broken the first commandment. Don't have any other gods before God. That's the category, God's righteousness. And here's the scary thing. And, and I'll, I'll even just ask this. Paul is talking and, and answering the question of Jewish, Jewish people who, who believed because of their Jewishness that they should probably be saved. What we need to ask, what are we trusting in that we believe that God should save us that we do? We have to ask that question. Is there anything, if, if, I, if I asked you, hey, what, why would God accept you? Why, like, why should you be welcomed into his eternal presence? If you were willing to say anything that you have possibly done, I, I want to be honest with you. That's damnable because it's not the gospel to point to anything that we have possibly done. And, and here's what I would say. If you are someone who tends to be self-righteous, in other words, you trust in your own righteousness, are you, are you as shocked by your righteousness as you are by the rebellious sinner who lives around you? Does your, is your sin of self-righteousness as repulsive to you as someone who is living in straight rebellion? Because here's the thing, though society might appropriate the good things you do, God sees them as disgusting and sinful if they're a means to try to merit his favor and acceptance and approval. So do you see them that way? I like what George Whitfield says. He says, our best duties, I think we have a slide for this. Our best duties are as so many splendid sins. You must not only be made sick of your sin, but you must be sick of your righteousness, all of your duties and performances. There must be a deep conviction before you can be brought out of your self-righteousness. It is the last idol taken out of your heart. There's no one righteous. No, not one. Next, no one seeks God. No one seeks God. Pulling up a quote that I have no clue where it's at, but hopefully I can find it here. <clears throat> It's not that you don't seek things from God when you are positionally separated from God. It's that Paul is saying that no one seeks for just God himself. In other words, you might seek God because you want something from God. You might seek God because you want your marriage to be in a better state. You might seek God because you want your kids to be better. You might seek God because you want something from God. You have anxiety and you want God to fix that, to heal that. You might come to God for things. There is, a, there is a church that has essentially kind of like a chant that they do during, during their offering time where it says, God, bless these offerings. We pray that through them you would give us raises, promotions, better success in, in, in the sales force, and they have this whole list of gross things that they mention that God would do for them. And in all reality, a lot of people do that. They're like, all right, God, Church four weeks in a row. You know the promotion's coming up. I've been checking it. Please come through for me. In that, it's not really seeking God. It's seeking something. And there's this incredible, I hesitate to use this. So in, 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 in the TV series Friends, okay, there's this one episode where 
a character named Phoebe and Joey get into an argument. And she says, the only reason you did the thing you did is because you wanted to be on TV. And he's like, oh yeah, the only reason you were a surrogate is because it made you feel good about yourself. And he goes, there is no such thing as a selfless good deed. And she's like, yes, there is. And then they come to this conclusion. Almost everything that I do in life, not, not almost, she said, everything I do, I've realized it's just selfish. Even if I do something good, typically I do it because it makes me feel good and I want praise for it. I, I do that. I mean, I, almost every time I'm on my front yard, I'm on my neighbor's front yard. And I'm thinking, I don't know, maybe then this summer they'll drop a beverage I like or something on my front doorstep, you know? Maybe. I'm like, at this point, I'm like, I would like a thank you, you know? But I'm like, haven't, neither of those have arrived, okay? I will pursue my wife sometimes out of a selfish ambition for either sex or something else that I want for her. And I'm saying that's a gross thing to do. But we do things with selfish ambition. I like the story that Charles Spurgeon shares. He says this, once upon a time, there was a king who ruled over everything in the land. One day there was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot. He took it to the king and said, my Lord, this is the greatest carrot I've ever grown or ever will grow. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. The king was touched and discerned the man's heart. So as he turned to go, the king said, wait, you are clearly a good steward of the earth. I want to give you a plot of land. I want to give a plot of land to you freely as a gift so you can garden it all. The gardener was amazed and delighted and went home rejoicing. But there was a nobleman at the king's court who overheard all of this. And he said, my, if that is what you get for a carrot, what if you give the king something better? The next day, the nobleman came before the king and he was leading a handsome black stallion. He bowed low and said, my Lord, I breed horses. And this is the greatest horse I've ever bred or ever will. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. But the king discerned his heart and said, thank you, and took the horse and simply dismissed him. The nobleman was perplexed. So the king said, let me explain. The gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. How often do you and I approach God presenting our good deeds with the heart of the nobleman rather than giving love-filled worship in response to our good king with the heart of the gardener? No one seeks God. To build a seeker-friendly church is an oxymoron. Because oftentimes what we're doing is just seeking our own selfish ambition. Again, we're just doing some open heart surgery here to surrender to our heart condition. Next, no one does good. doesn't say no one is good. We've already got our categories, righteous and unrighteous. It says no one does good, not even one. There's a verse in Jeremiah 17, 9. It says this, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's how scripture explains the human heart, that no one does good. Yet we love to tell of the wonderful and good things that we do. Let's keep moving. Our words. Verse 13. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of ass was under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Whoa. <laughs> Paul is using the language that's been used in Psalm 14 and 51 to say this. When you are around these people, it's like walking by an open grave, just rotten. Again, talking to people that believe they were righteous, good people. The problem is, is there's many people in the room today that are going to go, man, I know a lot of people that should have heard that. When in fact, 
what the human heart condition and what Paul's exposing is that's all of us. And we have to surrender to the fact that he's not talking to some of us. He's talking to all of us. We love to prove and try to show people how good we are. And he goes on to say that our words flow from a heart. And oftentimes you can tell people's spiritual condition based upon what they say, because the text also says in Ephesians 4.29 that every word that flows from our mouth should give grace to those who hear. Every word, not some of your words, all of the words that flow from your mouth. Yet we use our words to tear others down and gossip and slander. Why? Because we want to build up our own self-image. And the church has found unique ways to do it that look nice. Like, hey, did you hear about what so-and-so did? There's a comedian that does a whole skit on this. Like, I know it's bad. We should pray for her. But first, let me unpack the fullness of it before we pray for it so you know what you're praying for. It's like, okay. But we do that. Gossip is no small thing in the eyes of God. It might make you feel good to bring someone else down, but as an indicator of the heart. I also think this. I said, I think this. We actually care more about looking like loving people than actually loving people sometimes. In other words, we won't say hard truths to people because we don't want to be seen as unloving. And so we'll withhold information that someone really needs to hear. Why? Because at the end of the day, we're really selfish. And if I told you that, though I think you should hear it, it would make me uncomfortable and I love my comfort. So I'm not going to share that with you because it would make me uncomfortable. Though I think you need to hear it, and I think it might be a really horrific way to live. I think it might lead to some really awful things in life. I want people to see me as really loving, and I want to be liked by all people. Let's keep cruising. Their feet in 15 are quick to shed blood. Their paths are ruin and misery. Murder. That's what Paul's in, uh, unpacking. But Jesus already said that when you are angry against someone, it's murder. Why do we get angry? Simple. When people get between us and our idols, the things that we worship, we get angry, right? I'll just give you uh, real life examples. The other day, came around our kitchen corner and I smacked my head on an open cabinet. I'm like, my gosh, who left the cabinet door open? And I'm, I'm like angry. The reality is I probably left the cabinet door open, but I quickly want to blame someone else and I'm angry because it's uncomfortable. Now it's just a small example. But in a lot of ways, we get angry with people because they have imposed on our idols. My wife would probably might say in some ways I'm a little neurotic. Why? Because in some ways I like control. And I like things to look a certain way. I like things to go a certain way. And if you get near that, I'm probably going to come undone a little bit because you're, you're messing with my idol. So I love the things that I worship more than I love you. And when you come in between them, we're going to have to go head to head. That's a hard condition. Then it says this. Hang in there with me, guys. There might be some good news at the end. All right, <clears throat> 17. And the way of peace they have not known. Here, let me ask this. If you're not at peace with yourself, how are you possibly going to be at peace with others around you relationally? When you are exhausted through your own performance-driven ways of trying to prove yourself before God and the world around you, you will be exhausted and you're not going to be at peace with other people. Do you know what you're going to do? When you realize you can't live up to your own expectations on yourself, you're going to bury those around you with heaping expectations on them as well. Or you'll go the other direction. Because you're at such, there's such a lack of peace in you, you're going to smother everyone around you. Because you are insecure. And the way to bring peace and security in your life is to make sure that no one would ever detach themselves from you. 
And so therefore, there can be a lack of peace in our hearts. Where does your bitterness come from? Your anger, your resentment, your frustration? Could it be from a lack of peace inside of your heart, from a restless heart? And let's look here. There is no fear of God before their eyes. People view fear in a couple ways. One is Johnny Cash, okay? God's going to cut you down. That's one. He, he's the man upstairs. I hate that language. He's the man upstairs, and as soon as you mess up, he's waiting for you. And a lot of you have grown up with that theology, and it, and it actually, like, that's the theology I grew up with, and so my heart actually breaks for you in that because there's still a sense of you today that thinks that God's waiting on me to make a mess up, and then he's going to strike me down. Man. Let me assure you that is not an accurate view of your heavenly father. In fact, look at what Psalm 130 says. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. God's forgiveness leads to awe, leads to worship leads to us being blown away by his mercy, by his grace, and by his forgiveness. In this sense, true obedience will actually come from this. When you understand God's forgiveness and love and grace and mercy, obedience comes because you're not obeying God to get something from God. You're not obeying God to make God love you. You're not obeying God to make God pleased with you. You're actually obeying God because you already have all of those things. And so it's actually true obedience. He goes on to say, now we know that whatever the law says, it speak to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. What's the law? John Calvin, Protestant reformer, said this. There's three uses of the law that we see in Scripture. One, it functions as a mirror. A mirror. It shows us the moral standard of God and that we have not measured up. Two, we see it used for civil restraint. And three, we see it as the very life that Christians are called to live, which is a good thing. The law is not intended for you to look at and go, okay, I'll try to master it. And if I can master it, then God will love me. That's a misunderstanding of the law. So I would say this. First, we need to surrender to God and his righteousness. Then we need to surrender to our heart condition. And where does that leave us? Let's hope it doesn't leave us with Closing out in prayer right now. Because if we're being honest about our heart condition and surrendering to the state of it, we would say, my goodness, we need some help. We need a cure. And what I would say is that we need to surrender to the gospel. You need to see this. Because again, I can't read y'all. The room's been heavy for a few weeks. We've been in Romans, a lot on sin. We need to talk about sin. The church needs to talk about sin. Otherwise, you tell people that they need to be saved, and they're like, from what? I'm pretty good. The most loving thing God could do is allow you to see the true condition of the human heart because the same thing was happening in the first century that is happening today. The world thinks they're pretty good people. And then we try and prove our goodness through our virtuous efforts to put on display for everyone to see. Where does that come from? It's the human condition that's been going on for so long. So God in his goodness and his love actually exposes that you can't do it. You can't save yourself. You have a sick Human condition, the heart is sick, desperately sick. So in open heart surgery, what you need is to leave it on the table and you need someone to give you a new one. That's where the gospel comes in. Good news. 
You see, the gospel is not about good deeds. It's not about good dudes or good attitudes. It's about good news. Good deeds you can do. Good dudes you can prove. Good, good attitudes you can muster up. That's not the message of the gospel. The gospel is good news that's been done, and you believe it, and you stake the whole existence of your life in what someone else has done, and you rest in it. What is it? God sends his son not to set a model for how we live. God already gave that model in his law. He sent his son to live up to that model. And only Christ lived up to the model and the standard that God gave. Christ, everything he did was seeking God. Everything he did was genuinely good, not just to make himself feel good, but actually in, in service to God and to others. Jesus is the only one who walked this life with pure motives pure intentions, pure thoughts, who lived a holy and righteous life, who was completely set apart, who is eternally God and man. And then he goes and he lays his life down on the cross as a sacrifice to say this, you can't do it. You haven't done it. That's why I'm here giving my life, the life of obedience, the life of purity, the life of righteousness. I'm giving it on behalf of you. And as the text says here, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified because we've all failed it. So how will we be justified? When the Spirit of God opens our hearts to see our true condition and cry out, I need a Savior, and the Savior is Jesus Christ. We call that regeneration. We call it being born again. The Spirit comes inside of you, opens your heart and eyes to see, my goodness, I need Jesus. I haven't done it. And then what we do, that, so... In essence, the spirit surrenders your heart because we won't do that naturally. What it surrenders it to is that Jesus lived a life we couldn't and then died the death that we deserve. And the result is what's called justification, which means this. You are legally now declared by God innocent because Jesus on your behalf was legally declared by God guilty. So justification which the reformers called forensic, was this, is that we are declared righteous by God. So now legally innocent, positionally reconciled to God through what Jesus did. We stand, as one scholar says, on the ground of resurrection because we stand with Christ in his re re resurrection. He conquered Satan. He conquered sin. He lived the life we couldn't. He paid the death we deserve. If God declares you righteous, will he ever declare you unrighteous? No. That would be a change. You have safety and security in Christ. Now, we have this security. We have this safety. What happens? Night after night, as a dad, my 10-year-old is in this room, and so I'll share a story about her. Her name is Joey. Joey will sometimes be in her room, and she will read and try to get herself to fall asleep. And she struggles. Like her dad, she can have a restless soul. Time and time again, what Joey has done is she'll either come downstairs to where dad's at on the couch, or she'll go into my bedroom, and I'll say, Joe, you can come lay with me. Joe will snuggle up next to me, and within minutes, she's out cold. Why? There is safety and security that she feels in the presence of her dad that puts her to sleep. For the Christian who has a confidence in Christ 
as their means of salvation and love from the Father, their soul is put at a state of peace because they're not at war with their God and with their Father who loves them infinitely. They're helped. What we do now is ask the Spirit to help us surrender to the fact that we don't change God's love for us. We ask the Spirit to help us to rest in the love that God has for us. We ask the Spirit to help us to surrender to the fact that Jesus said it is finished, and it actually is. Everything that needs to be done for your soul to be forgiven and reconciled to God is actually finished. Ask the Spirit who lives inside of you now to help you rest in it, to help you know that you are lovable because Christ himself has made you that. And then what we do is we ask the same Spirit to help us with this. Martin Luther said, we don't, we're not justified by our works to the law. We're not saved by our works, but we are saved to works. And what he meant was this. We have a living faith, Christians. We don't look at God's law and say, get rid of it. We don't look at it and say, I have to adhere to it to measure up to God. We look at it and say, that's already been taken care of. But now through the power of the spirit, we ask spirit, help me to live consistent to my new nature in Christ and walk in obedience to God's law. And let me say this, if your heart's not there and it's hardened, then I'm going I'm to implore you and graciously challenge you to do this. Let your hands and feet lead because our hearts, even though Christ comes in and saves us, puts his spirit inside of us, they're still deceitful. So sometimes we have to let our hands and feet lead to love and serve others when our hearts aren't even there. But let me end with this. Leave today knowing this, that through what Christ has done, we can surrender to his finished work, to his ultimate payment, and to the love that God has for us that won't waver. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the gospel, for the good news. We need it, and we praise you for it. Help us. Let us go to the table today with joy and celebration. We see our heart condition. Your word makes it clear, but we also see Jesus's heart, his beauty. And I pray that our hearts this day, as we walk to the table, are walking to the table, surrendered to the fact that it's been done. Amen.